Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Thomas D. Williams is the author of Who is My Neighbor? Personalism and the Foundation of Human Rights. Also, The World as It Could Be, Catholic Social Thought for a New Generation. His new book is The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse and How to Prepare for What Is to Come. Our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a privilege to be on your show. Persecution is a strong word, but in chapter one, you give us uh, a pretty, a pretty strong, complete layout of the trend. Can you summarize uh, some of those, some of those stats or numbers for us from around the world? Sure, Mark. I think there are two that are particularly telling. Um, and they're the kind of the larger global figures. One is the number of Christians who presently, currently at this moment in time, live under regimes and in situations where they are in serious danger. And the number there is 360 million. Uh, <laughs> according to the best uh, Christian watchdog groups that monitor this sort of thing, there are 360 million who currently live under uh, regimes where their lives are actually in danger. They are for physical damage to their, their persons. The second piece of data that I think is, is equally telling is that of all the people in the world today who are persecuted in whatever way for their faith, whatever it may be, three quarters of those are Christians. 75% of those in the world persecuted, harassed, uh, with violent committed, violence committed against them, whatever it might be, because of faith are Christians. And that's something that is, I think it's kind of the untold story. I just don't think that most of our contemporaries understand the extent of the problem, the magnitude of the problem. And that's really what motivated me to write the book was just people need to know what is going on. Yeah. I mean, you, you have sections on North Korea, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Nigeria, India, China, Pakistan. That That's quite... That's quite a large portion of, of, of the world's population right there. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, if you look at just China and India alone in terms of numeric figures, um, obviously those are mixed realities too. Within China and within India, there are places and regions where Christians suffer more, where they suffer less. And also there are regions where there are no Christians at all, quite frankly. Um, so it is a, a little bit of a, you can't just say everyone in China is under the same sort of, uh, same sort of, fear of aggression and fear of hostility for their faith. But the numbers are I really, I think, astronomical. Uh, that's larger than the population of the entire United States, the number of Christians in the world who live in that fear. You know, uh, I, I, Dr. Williams, I hadn't thought of this as a question, but generally about persecution. Persecution doesn't have to be taking place every day, right? 
and it doesn't have to hit a lot of people. I mean, if, if you've got if you've got a city, really one attack, let's say, on a, a Christian church, yeah, you know, a, a city of 500,000 people, one attack on a Christian church that is obviously religiously motivated, that goes largely unpunished, uh, that, that really counts as persecution for all Christians in the city. Is that correct? I mean, would you say? That, that's an I mean, I mean, excellent I, point. No, no, because, you're I mean, exactly you're, li- you're living right. under... Yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. Well, you are. I mean, because everyone is in fear from that moment on. That could have been right. me. That could have been my church. That could have been my house. That could have been my child. Uh, whatever it is, it's like the nature of terrorism itself. It doesn't take, not everyone has to be physically assaulted or even threatened to live in terror. It's enough to know that it's there, that it's present, and that at any moment it could strike. And that is really the nature of Christian persecution as well. Yeah, I mean, so so persecution really counts as not just physical attack, but also the uh, the the rational fear that it may happen. Well, we, absolutely. We've got... and, no, when we use figures like 360 million, that does not mean that 360 million Christians have been physically attacked or assaulted. It means that they live in reasonable fear of that happening because it happens in their area. It happens with enough regularity that they know they could be next. Right, right. And, and, and the reason we would call it persecution is there seems to be no other reason for the attack other than religious identity. Well, and, and many of these groups have intentionally made this clear. I remember it was very striking right. when the Islamic State got very upset with Pope Francis because Pope Francis said, oh, they're not doing that out of religious motivation. It's economic. And it's and, and they came out with an entire uh, issue of their magazine of the, Islamic, of the Islamic State called Dabiq, saying Francis is... He is, he is misrepresenting us. That is never what we said. We do this because we believe that this is what Allah wants us to do. We're doing this because we are religiously motivated, and he should not take that from us. So, yeah, no, that's definitely the case. Uh, in the next chapter, you actually turn to the response to this kind of persecution, and you state that the first thing one should be aware of is that this is entirely to be expected. I mean, this is if one is a devout Christian, uh, look at Jesus's life. It was inevitable, right, that he was going to be persecuted. And so we should expect this ourselves. Yes. Yes. But again, I think it's not bad to remind ourselves of this. I think it's really strange, but it's true that in our day and age, we tend to sugarcoat our own gospel. We tend to elide, you know, certain paragraphs and certain sayings that are just a little tough or it sounds too negative. And we focus on, you know, the very nice sounding things and the ones where we're promised all sorts of beautiful things and um, even ourselves, even within our own faith community. And I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus, first of all, suffered persecution bodily in his life from when he was a small child and Herod wanted to get rid of him by eliminating all the male children of, of his age, all the way up to his death on the cross, there was ongoing, well, his hidden life, we don't know an awful lot about what sort of persecution there actually was. We can skip that. But his public life, we know from day one, 
it was very present right up to the moment of his passion. And he then said, you know, if this is the way they treat me, this is the way they will treat you. Uh, and I think that's a good reminder for us Christians that if we don't suffer something uncomfortable, some sort of harassment, some sort of ostracization, some sort of we don't fit in, we're ridiculed, there's something where we're not considered quite up to snuff, then we should ask ourselves, am I really a good follower of Jesus? Because he said, we'll be recognized by our similarity to him, we'll be treated the way he was. You know, we should be worried not when we're treated badly, we should be worried when we're treated too well by the world, because that was <laughs> not the blueprint for Jesus's life. I mean, uh, uh, Jesus, you, you will be persecuted for my sake, and for that reason you're blessed. My choice withdrew you from the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But since my choice mm -hmm. withdrew you from the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the message for all generations of Christians. This is what we're supposed to expect. And it's great, honestly, in a way that he foretold that reality with such clarity, because you know we would really wonder, I think, if, if we suffered a lot of persecution and he hadn't said anything, he'd be like, I must be doing something wrong. Uh, my message is not being received. This is not. But he said, oh, no, they're not going to receive you. You're going to say it and they're going to hate you and they're going to put some of you to death and they're going to mistreat you because of my name. Well, we could use a little more persecution in the United States, right? Uh, not in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have, I, I think, persecution is growing faster in the United States than it is in many parts of the world. And, I, and, and it actually shocks me to see the accelerated pace with which it has become acceptable and then popular and then normal to treat Christians as part of the problem with the world and part of the problem with the country uh, and trying to lump them together in movements that I don't know anyone who identifies with, a Christian nationalism or with, you know, Christian, and you're looked upon as somehow maybe not quite right to hold public office. We've seen the harassment that, that yeah. very, very capable candidates for the district courts and then for the Supreme Court have faced because they take their faith, if you will, too seriously. The dogma lives loudly in you. Uh, Diane Feinstein yeah. famously said to Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, yeah. And this is a problem. This means the, the idea there, the supposition is if you're that beholden to your faith, if you're that devout, then you really won't be reliable as someone who is able to judge according to the constitution of this country. One would like to see in response to those those subtle or not so subtle persecutions or accusations, uh, a real strong protest, a real strong expression of faith right in the middle of secular society. I think that would be wonderful. And the 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 reaction of the authorities will be what it is. But uh, let's, let's test the willingness of, let's just say, the secular state, secular forces, to suppress us. Maybe, maybe let them know we might be a little stronger in our, in our faith, our belief, our commitment, our convictions than, than you would like. And yeah. that's tough. That's too bad. You remind me of something. I don't, I don't comment on this in the book, but uh, when Archbishop Karl Wojtyla, when John Paul II first became Archbishop in Krakow, one of the first things he did in, that was under communist rule in the Soviet Union at that time was to reinstate 
the uh, processions of the Blessed Sacrament around the city. And he, he stood up to the authorities and said, we are going to do this. We are a Christian people. We are a Catholic people. And we are going to walk through the seas. We are going to process peacefully with the Blessed Sacrament because this is what we do. We worship not always behind closed doors, but also in right. public as a witness to our faith. Lots of witnessing. Well, you, you turn to the fates of the disciples in, in the book. You say that we should remember what happened to them a little more closely and, and embrace what happened to them. Give us an example. Well, yeah, I mean, the witness of the martyrs has always been, for all Christians of all ages since those very first years under the Roman Empire, this has been a real badge of honor to see how the, the courage to see the witness up to the point of shedding blood, so much so that Tertullian could say, you know, it's the blood of martyrs that the seed of Christians. This is what gives birth. This is what regenerates the church. And we see this right from the beginning. We see it with the first martyr. We see St. Stephen, the proto-martyr, who is stoned because he stands up to the Sanhedrin and he says, no, I, and then up to the point of actually looking up and saying, I see heaven lie wait open. I see the son of man at the feet of the power. I mean, this is something we cannot hold that back. We cannot hold it in. I think, you know, the real importance of this witness is that we cannot be afraid to do and to say what we are called to do and to say as much as we might not want to do that. It will make our lives more uncomfortable. It will make them more unpleasant in many ways. And, you know, I think one of the greatest dangers for Christian in our day and age is not so much to necessarily deny Christ. It is to to offer a more domesticated, more nice and friendly version of the gospel and the version of our living of the gospel and version of our yeah. teaching of the truth, uh, one that kind of fits in with society. And we see that with some of our politicians. We see that with public Catholics who are willing to deny basically anything of their faith that does not, you know, that, that happens to co uh, clash with their party platform or that clashes with, you know, a certain sector of society and their beliefs because they would rather be popular in that than to be faithful to the teaching of their own church and, and to Jesus Christ himself. And I think that that is the fear we should all have. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that anti-witness because how many then does that lead astray? How many then does that say, oh, it's okay to be this sort of Catholic or this sort of Christian? Yeah. Let, let me make one qualification of what you said, uh, Dr. Williams, about making your life more uncomfortable. Materially uncomfortable, and more spiritually comfortable. That is, I, I, I take your point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, Thank okay. You. Now, uh, uh, you mentioned the martyrs. I mean, the first three centuries, and you lay out some of this history, the first three centuries of the church saw bloody persecution uh, on and off. How much of this memory actually remains among Christians today? So, I mean, it's hard to say in the sense that, I mean, as a church, we remember our liturgy especially, unfortunately, we don't use it that often. The Roman canon, the first canon of the mass, goes through a fairly decent-sized litany of those first martyrs, men and women, clerics, if you will, and lay people, some of the first popes and some of these amazing uh, female martyrs, going all the way from Rome and its, and its domain all the way to North Africa and other places. We think of Perpetuum Felicity that were, that were martyred in Carthage. Uh, so this is something that from the very centuries, Christians considered it very important to memorialize so much so that it became a part of our memorial sacrifice, our memorial ritual of the mass. It is part and parcel. And 
portions of the martyrs' bones and their remains were always placed under uh, altars. This is part of the, to remind us that we share in the sacrifice of Christ, that this is the sacrifice of the church, the body of Christ, as well as Jesus, the head. And I think that that is something that perhaps in this day and age, and I'll, honestly, when we talk less and less about the sacrifice of the mass and more just about gathering around the table, we sometimes do lose a little bit of that sacrificial sense of what it means to be offering oneself up. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Yeah. Well, the people need to look more at those medieval triptychs, right, in those churches, because there's a lot of blood. On those things. Okay, so uh, uh, you know there are specific martyrs uh, that you think are quite inspiring for Christians at the current time: uh, uh, Pope Clement, Ignatius of, of Antioch, uh, Polycarp. Uh, anything? Why? Why them? Uh, if you want to give us one example, why them? All right, let's start with Saint Polycarp. I mean, honestly, the reasons that I find them particularly moving is because we know more about them. Quite, quite frankly, I'm sure that there were some other martyrs that had amazing, stellar, astounding experiences, but we don't have the kind of writings that we have, for example, in the case of the martyr, martyrdom of St. Polycarp, which we have the actual dialogue between him and the Roman procurator at the time. And th this is something that was, that was amazing to actually be able to read what he said. And it's very moving. He was 84 years old and he was, they, they pleaded with him and they said, look, you know, we really don't want to kill you, You're a respected member of the community. We don't dislike you. You just have to deny this. You just have to do what the others do and, and light incense to the emperor. It's a very easy thing. We're not asking you a lot. And and, no. and Polycarp says, no, he says, <laughs> he says, four and 80 years, I have served my Lord and he has never betrayed or denied me. How will I deny him? Uh, just, there it is. That There it is. There it is. And well, that's that, what we're called to be that simple and that clear. Now, the, the church, does the church today actually discourage the faithful from pursuing martyrdom? Is there, is, I mean, I mean, one doesn't yeah, want to yes pursue and, yes martyrdom, no. right? Yes and no. Right. Yes and no. And this goes back actually to the first centuries also. Uh, St. Augustine, for example, encouraged Christians. He said, do not go out and you're not meant to commit some sort of ritual suicide. This is not the point. The point is right. you are to live your life and bear witness and what comes will come. You are not supposed to look for it. We have one kind of example of the contrary of that, which is Ignatius of Antioch, because Ignatius kept saying, you know, this is my best chance. This is my best chance to, in his expression, to truly become a disciple. Do not slow me down. Do not be nice to them. Do not make them like me. Do not do anything that could keep me. I want to be ground by the, the teeth of the beast into the fresh bread of Christ. I mean, he really longed for martyrdom. But in, in my estimation, uh, I, I think he had a very special gift of the Holy Spirit to really want that with that kind of passion. He just felt that call uh, more than anything else. He just really felt that that was what Jesus was asking of him. Yeah. 
In chapter 4, you ask, quote, why the special hostility toward Christians? Now, I mean, I mean, in some of these places, Christians are a pretty small minority. Uh, there could be other groups to persecute. Why, why Christians in these places? Anything special about Christianity that provokes this? Well, that is kind of the, uh, the $100 million question. What is it that makes Christians? Because I mentioned at the very beginning that such a large percentage of those who are persecuted for their faith happen to be Christians. Um, and, and that is something to take note of. Uh, and there are some atheist writers, if, if you read their books, if you read you know, the, the, the reams of, uh, of, of, of uh, pen to paper that have been put out in the last 20, 25 years against God, it's always the Christian God. When you read them, if you read, read Christopher Hitchens yeah. or, or, or Richard Dawkins or any, you know, Daniel uh, Dennett or any of these writers, they really have it in for the Christian God. And when they talk about religion, they're really talking about Christianity. And, and those who, there's, there was an interview that I read and that I repeated some in the book of this guy that said that when he was in college, he used to love to harass his Christian friends. He would harass them because it gave him pleasure. And he said he didn't bother to do it with his friends who were Muslims or Buddhist or Jews. He said it just didn't have the same thrill for him. There was something hmm. about the Christian that made them especially worthy as a target. And, uh, and there have been different explanations given. Um, in the book, I come to the one that I consider the most satisfying, which is the, the early letter to Diognetus, where uh, the author, this early Christian author says, really it's because Christians are to the world as the soul is to the body, and the body hates the soul. The body does not like being told, rein in your passions and rein in and, and exercise self-control and obey your higher calling rather than your lower calling, your instincts and your passions. And, and that that was something that for the world, it will always be a sign of contradiction that there are those who, who look and say, that's not the way we're called to live. Yeah. What is the distinction between white and red martyrdom? That's, a, that's a, a very important one for this day and age, too, because a lot of what we live in the West is really, in my estimation, anyway, a white martyrdom. So traditionally, red martyrdom is the shedding of blood. It's the clear thing. The knife is put to your neck, you're beheaded, you're hung, you're drawn and quartered, whatever it happens to be, as you say, all these many different forms that have been used. Uh, white martyrdom has always been a willingness to undergo suffering in a quiet way that does not reach the point of shedding blood. And it's even been applied to those, for example, um, contemplative nuns and, and, and monks who give their entire life to Jesus, to Jesus Christ, and live in a way that is an ongoing real sacrifice of their entire lives. Uh, and nowadays, it's often used, or something Pope Francis called a soft martyrdom, or a martyrdom, he says, with gloves. And this is something we see in the West where they won't expressly, you know, they will not assault you on the street, but they will make it clear that you live, you're, you're a bigot, <laughs> you are, your morality is medieval, uh, you adhere to a Bronze Age uh, set of texts that are not worthy of thinking rational, enlightened human beings. They will ostracize you in the academy, uh, and they will make it look like you're just a useful idiot uh, and someone that maybe they have as a token Christian who takes their faith seriously, but someone not to be taken overly seriously. There are many ways that this sort of white martyrdom can take place where people are made to feel dumb, to feel excluded, to feel like you're not a real member of this community. Yeah. 
Do we have a, a pattern of vandalism of Christian churches going on right now in the United States? We do, um, and it, it, it really took an enormous jump in 2020. Uh, kind of coincided with the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, but then there was that big wave of violence after uh, the Junipero Serra question came up in California. He, as we know, was recently canonized by Pope Francis, but then the whole question of these, uh, the way the Indians were treated, Indians or whatever the word, actually they were, you know, Spanish speaking, uh, indigenous people in California, the way they were treated in these schools. And um, as much as I've been able to read about it, which is a fair amount, um, it was an unmitigated blessing what they received. But the fact that there was corporal punishment at any school you ever went to and any home you ever went to in those days, apparently is enough for some people to say that these were brutal, uh, you know, child beating, horrible human beings. Uh, the vandalism doesn't get a lot of press uh, be because of the secular orientation of most of the, the media. They certainly don't want to give Christians any martyrdom uh, at this point. We're the victimizers. We're, we're, no, we're never the victims. Uh, last question, uh, Dr. Williams. Is there any sign of Christians organizing to, to stop the vandalism, to— to resist the the persecution? You know, I, I think th there is a little bit, but not nearly as much, I think, as you and I would like. Uh, Jesus does not call us, despite the fact that he said, you know, when they strike you on one cheek, present the other cheek. It was Jesus himself who, when he was slapped, said, if I, if I didn't say anything wrong, why'd you hit me? I mean, he was the <laughs> first one to say, wait a minute. And, and I think that there is, there are little signs, little buds, of pushing for greater uh, religious freedom, which is really an important banner for the United States and for the world, especially when you have these, if you will, competing rights, uh, when you have, a, particularly on certain moral issues such as abortion, uh, gay marriage, and, and transgender issues, where people's faith clash, you know, clashes directly with some of these other presumed rights. And I think there we really have to hold up religious freedom as the first of our freedoms as the founders always saw it. This is not just one among many even. This is this deserves pride of place and people being true to their conscience and true to their beliefs and especially relating to Almighty God, they, they have a right to live that and they cannot be pressured or, or forced to act in a way that would violate that. I, I think the, the signs are that this persecution isn't going to stop if Christians simply try to be conciliatory and, and, and try to make their faith ever more private. It's not going to stop. And your book is a, is a sober warning to, to the Christians of, of what is coming, what the next years are going to be like. The title is The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse and How to Prepare for What Is to Come. Dr. Williams, thank you for joining us. Mark, it was such a pleasure. I, I'm really grateful. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.